But this morning, um, I would just, uh, as we get started, we are continuing our series in this beautiful book of Psalms, and it's hard to believe we are more than halfway through the year. We are in August, people. And in fact, yesterday we had our staff meeting, our monthly staff meeting, and uh, I just give you a little behind the scenes here. We are already talking about Christmas. And just to let you know, Christmas Eve this year falls on a Sunday. So Christmas is on Monday. And so we are already making plans about what we're doing for Christmas Eve service. And we're going to have two services that day. We're still going to have our morning Sunday worship service, and we're going to have our evening Christmas candlelight service. So we're doing two services just to let you know on Christmas Eve. Um, and so as we are working through this beautiful book, it's amazing to see how quickly, in many ways, time has gone, right? As they say, the days are long and the years are short. Um, a few weeks ago when I was in Michigan for our general conference, Randall and I went to service at a, at a, a well-established church um, called the, it was called Pillar Church, and if there's a little bit of history, I'm, I'm going to get a little nerdy on you, forgive me, okay, but um, there was the, um, uh, there was the Reformed Church in America church there, and then the CRC as well, which is also a Reformed church, they split at this church, that's where they split at this church, and we were in service there, so it is a very well-known historical church, and um, the pastor gets up and he says, it's hard to believe, church, how quickly summer has gone, and I think I turned around and I said, for us, it's like it cannot go soon enough, <laughs> right? It's just a complete flip over there, um, but it's, it's amazing um, that we're all the way eight months through this beautiful book of Psalms. This morning, as we continue in this series, I have been sharing in the times that I have had the opportunity to share with you all um, different perspectives that others people have had on this wonderful book of Psalms. And this morning, I want to give you another perspective. And it's by a well-known Christian author, Philip Yancey, who has written some wonderful, beautiful books about the faith, about church, about life in Christ. And he says this about the book of Psalms. What I see in the Bible especially in the book of Psalms, which is a book of gratitude for the created world, is a recognition that all good things on earth are God's. Amen? Do you ever look, or maybe have you begun to look maybe, and maybe you haven't, at the book of Psalms as a book of gratitude? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for everything you have given me, this wonderful world to enjoy its beauty regardless of what may be happening out there and, th and by the way these kinds of things will always happen there will always be conflict there will always be divisions there will always be heartache there will always be times of trouble there will always be if you will extremism and whatever else in all its forms and yet brothers and sisters i hope we can see through all of that noise through all of that obscure things that try to cloud our view that Jesus Christ has made everything on this earth that we can see for our complete enjoyment and his. And that's something to be grateful for. The book of Psalms, in some ways, in many ways, I think gives us this perspective. Every good gift, Philip Yancey writes, is from above. Every good gift. They are good if we recognize where they came from and if we treat them the way the designer intended them to be treated, which brings to mind a reality that, yes, God created this beautiful world for us to live in. And by the way, it is his world with our fingerprints on it, not the other way around. 
It is his world with our, you know, kind of influence and dare I say even um, terrible things that we have done to this world. He still, he still is Lord of all. This is still his world. Um, that him, this is my father's world, right? I mean, that is so true. This is my father's world. And I just get to be here for a time to spend on this world until he makes all things new. And then we get to spend the time on this world as it was meant to be at the beginning of creation in the Garden of Eden, where we get to be with Jesus face to face. And it's wonderful, beautiful. What a, what a glorious future we have in him. And yet, here's the thing, is that to help us prepare for that, there are things that Jesus has given us already that we can enjoy, even if we may not always realize it. And today, I want us to look at one of those things that he has given us, and that is the gift, the beautiful gift of unity. And we're going to take a look at this beautiful gift of unity and, the, and why it is just so important for us to realize that we have this gift. Because I don't know about you, but it is so easy in our time, and I don't think I'm saying anything that should surprise us, for us to divide rather than to be united. Right? I was just doing a cursory glance here. Do you know how many denominations there are in the world? Just Christian Protestant denominations, by the way. 45,000. 45,000 denominations in this world. 200 different denominations in the United States alone. Holy mackerel. And do you know what we spend our time doing? And I do it too. Confession. I do it too. We spend our time doing why our denomination is great and the rest are not. Right? Well, yeah, I know you probably go to, go to a good church who's got a good denomination, but oh, you haven't been to my church. You haven't been to where my, you ought to hear my pastor. He brings it. He knows how to preach, right? He knows how to say the hard stuff. He, he doesn't code it at all. He just goes right at it. I mean, we spend so much time trying to say this is how we are different from one another that we forget oftentimes that we are more united then we should ever be divided. Right? That is a sad commentary. I was listening to one pastor who was making the claim about a version of a Bible that was a fairly well-known, perhaps the most popular version in Protestant Christianity of the Bible, talking about how awful it is and how the version he uses is the correct one. I joke. I really do. Let me just let you in on a secret. I don't care what version you use of the Bible. I really don't. Just read the Bible. If the King James works for you, Randall, read it. <laughs> read it. I don't care. If the NIV works for you, read it. If you resonate with a paraphrase, like the message, I wouldn't, stu I mean, I wouldn't recommend study from it, but if you want to read it for just, just to read, my word, read it. You can't go wrong picking up this book no matter what version you might be reading from it at all. It's ridiculous, church. It's ridiculous just how divided we can be. 
And yet, here's the thing. We know that we, that we, we need unity. We desire it, and yet in another way, we dislike it because we fear we lose individuality. We fear we might lose a little bit of ourselves if we try to be, unite, try to be united rather with one another. We are unified under Christ, and yet we still live like we're divided. We value unity and at the same time misuse it. And instead of unity, we try to have unanimity. We try to have people look the same as we do and talk the same as we do and, 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 and walk the same as we do and all of that kind of stuff. That's not unity. That's not unity. And on top of that, we have an enemy, Satan, who is set against us to do what he can do to make sure that we stay divided. Charles Spurgeon said this, Satan always hates Christian fellowship. Always. That's an absolute word. I think that's accurate. Always hates it when we are gathered even right now in what we're doing. Satan can't stand this. Always hates Christian fellowship. It is his policy to keep Christians apart. Anything which can divide saints from one another, he delights in. He attaches far more importance to godly intercourse than we do. Imagine that. Satan takes seriously, probably even more seriously than we even as Christians, our gathering together to worship and praise him, our gathering together to pray to him, our gathering together to be with each other. Satan takes that far more seriously than we do. I believe that. I believe that. I think he knows what happens here. Since union is strength, he does his best to promote separation. To promote separation. D.L. Moody said this, and this is even harder. I have never yet known the Spirit of God to work where the Lord's people were divided. That is why this gift of unity is in so many ways incredibly necessary. And I hope as we look today, an incredibly beautiful gift. It's incredibly difficult because it's hard to practice, it's hard to keep. Satan is there to try to take it away. And when this happens, as it seems too often, it, it, the witness of the church to the unity of Jesus and the gospel is severely compromised. Is severely compromised. Which is why today we're going to take a look at a very short psalm. Psalm 133. Three verses today, church. Three verses, that's it, of this psalm. And in these short three verses, hopefully, or my hope is rather, that we will discover three different ways that unity is a gift. Three different ways that unity is a gift and what it takes for us to remain unified. Now, here's the assumption I want us to start off with this this morning. We already have the gift of unity. This is not something we have to attain to get. We already have it. We already have the gift of unity. We already have it. This is not something that we need to say, okay, we don't have it now, but we will hope for it later. It's not something that we can say, okay, it's something for us to experience when we're with Jesus fully in his presence. No, no, no. We have unity right now. We have this gift right now. Here is the problem or here is the challenge for us. 
is to one is to one make sure that we understand that we have this gift and number two to try to help maintain and keep this gift that's the hardest thing because of the factors i mentioned earlier are just going to try to pull us apart and try to take this gift from us which is why i love this psalm so if you have a bible with you let's go to psalm 133 and let's dive into this beautiful psalm a little bit of a background on this psalm psalm 133 is the second to last of a group of psalms 15 of them in total uh, psalms 120 to 134 uh, that are known as the psalms of ascents that were sung in other words by the people of israel as they went up to jerusalem to worship at the temple they would sing these songs called psalms of ascent as they were going up to jerusalem to worship at the temple there okay and so here in this psalm david is the author of it and this is what he writes he says this look how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters kindred brethren truly live in unity it is like fine oil poured on the head which flows down from the beard aaron's beard and then flows down his garments it is like the dew of hermon okay which flows upon the hills of zion indeed that is where the lord has decreed a blessing will be available eternal life that's it now here are three ways in which unity is a gift three different ways that unity is a gift the first one is this unity is a wonderful gift here's what i mean by this david describes in verse one here with poetic and vivid detail the wonderful nearly indescribable gift and he starts off with a declarative statement look how good and pleasant it is when brothers truly live in unity now two words i want to focus in on good and pleasant okay good and pleasant that's wonderful good and pleasant that word good in hebrew is the same word that god said after he was creating the world and after every day he would look at his creation and he said it is good it is good right have you ever said that about something you created you stand back after maybe you created something a painting a sculpture whatever it was and you stood back and you said it is good maybe you repaired something and you stood back and you said oh this is good it works it works i mean it's just that's just kind of how it is right there was um one of the hardest courses i ever took in college that was beginning to get to be a long time ago now it's hard to believe that um by the way where where randall and i went to church in michigan that was where i went to college was in that little hometown there called holland michigan and uh it was I, I, the heart, one of the hardest courses I took, which I thought was going to be one of the easiest courses, was ceramics, pottery making, all that kind of stuff. I thought that was going to be an easy A. That teacher had something to prove. That's all I got to say. That professor had something to prove. There were rarely times when I looked at my pottery that I made and I looked at it and I said, this is good. No, I have one piece and it's in my office here at the church and it's a bowl I keep my candy in on the table the elders all know about it the staff all know about it they have no qualms going in there and getting my candy 
at all. But they know in that bowl, that is the one bowl I look at and thought, now that is good. It has a footer on it. It's, it's just got wonderful colors. It's just beautiful. Even has my initials on the bottom so everyone can know it, that I made this. This belongs to me. And it is good. Man, this is what God, as David writes this psalm in verse 1, is trying to communicate. It is good and it is pleasant when brothers and sisters, kindred, live together in unity. In other words, that, that word for unity is like pulling in the same direction, equality, all at once, all alike, similar. It is beautiful when this can happen. It is beautiful when this can happen. It is a beautiful, beautiful picture, in many ways, of the early church. Take a look at what Acts chapter 2 Verses 42 through 44 says and paints for us what unity, in many ways, I think, looks like. It says this. They were, and this is the early church. These, these were the, the, the believers, the disciples of Jesus, the early followers of Jesus. They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Reverential awe. Wow. Reverential awe came over everyone, and many wonders and miraculous signs came about by the apostles, and all who believed were together and held everything in common. Holy mackerel. I love it when pastors say, I want us to go back to the early church. I want us to be like the early church. I, I get it. I'd, I'd love that too. In many ways, we have little snippets of it, but we've been around for a while now, brothers and sisters. We've been around for a little while. It isn't as exciting as it once was when these believers first got together after Jesus ascended and the Holy Spirit came and the birth of the church happened. And by the way, that's when it's most exciting oftentimes, right? Perhaps the most exciting part of your life with Jesus Christ is when you first came to accept him as Lord and Savior. Have you ever met a new believer who has just accepted Jesus? You, they are excited they are full-blown, they are all about Jesus. They see Jesus in everything. I was toasting my bread this morning, Pastor. <laughs> right? I mean, they see Jesus and they are so excited. Right? And some of us who have been around for a while, yeah, just wait. <laughs> Let's see if you're excited as you are now after you face some trials because of the fact you're following him. And now all of a sudden the Holy Spirit wants to begin to work some things in your life. And by the way, the early church was not immune to this. In fact, it wasn't long afterwards that there was a conflict that arose. You remember this in the book of Acts, right? There were some widows, right? There were the Gentile widows and there were the Jewish widows. The Jewish widows were being taken care of and the Gentile widows were being neglected and there were some complaints going on and they went to the apostle and they said, hey, this is not right. And that's when the deacons were born. Do you remember that? Choose some folks among you who can do this work because we need to dedicate our work to the preaching and teaching of the word, right? And so all of a sudden now, we have the deacons that have, that have become a part of the church and their sole purpose was to help serve and help minister to those within the body to make sure that everyone was being cared for. But remember, even that aura of unity didn't last very long. There's a reality that sets in. 
that it is hard. But man, when those times happen, when we can dwell together, when we are pulling in the same direction, when it is just, we are just, you know, firing on all cylinders and we are just together and we love it. That's a beautiful time, isn't it? It's a beautiful, beautiful time. It's a wonderful gift. I love how some pastors shared this. It, they said this, when the gospel enables us to live in love, even though we may have nothing else in common save Christ, it is a testimony to its power to transform a group of sinful, self-centered people into a loving community united by a common relationship with Jesus Christ. By the way, we're united in Jesus and we're also united in the fact that we're all sinners. We're all selfish. We all have a little bit of attitude problem, don't we? If we're honest about it. We all have issues in our lives that need to be dealt with. In fact, every single one of us brings in baggage. And yes, I said that in a Midwestern tone. I get made fun of for saying the word bag. Okay? I'm just saying it correctly. That's all I'm saying it. All right? Every single one of us bring in baggage. And by the way, some people's baggage is more obvious than others. Oh, that's not going to be, that's, that's not a carry-on. That's a check-in. That's a big one right there, right? The rest of us have just gotten really good at hiding it or compressing it or making it really, really, really small. But if we unzip that bag, out it pops. We all have it. We all bring it in here. We all bring it. And there's nothing wrong about that there's nothing odd about that it's just a recognition church that we are all sinful broken people in need of a savior period period i love that jesus as he was preparing to go to the cross spends a great deal of time praying in the garden and remember that the, the three people he took with him, his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, kept falling asleep. And the question was, what was Jesus praying? And we get a little sense of what he was praying in some of those Gospels, but John really expands it. And here's a little snippet of what Jesus was praying, what I think is so relevant for us here. And he says this in John 17, verses 20 through 21. I am not praying only on their behalf, in other words, those who are alive with him at that moment right now, but also on behalf of those who believe in me through their testimony. We are those who have believed in Jesus because of what the apostles have testified, okay? That they will be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. I pray that they will be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. Unity is a wonderful gift when we live together and we are with each other and when we get along together and it is also a wonderful gift in that it displays the gospel of Jesus Christ period unity is a wonderful gift number two unity is a precious gift unity is a precious gift verse 2 of Psalm 133 David writes it is like fine oil poured on the head which flows down the beard, Aaron's beard, and then flows down his garments. It's interesting that David describes unity like that of oil flowing down Aaron, Aaron's beard and his priestly robes. 
It, it signifies in many ways that this kind of oil would have been used on priests, on special occasions to ordain, to consecrate, to make sacred, or to set aside for a specific purpose, to use, and ultimately as being declared holy. That, that this, this oil that is poured on Aaron's hair that flows down his beard and onto his priestly robes, this was not cheap oil. This was not cheap oil. This was not oil you could just simply pick up anywhere. This was expensive oil. Think of the woman who, when Jesus was at, a, was at a Pharisee's house, she comes in, opens up a jar of oil, and anoints Jesus with it. And the response from, depending upon the version you read, from Judas, I'll go with that, says, what a waste. That oil could have been sold and have been given to the poor because it was probably worth at least a year's salary for that kind of oil. This kind of unity is, is, is an incredibly precious gift. And what I mean by that is that it needs to be treated very carefully and it comes at a cost. Unity comes at a cost. We are all set aside we are all consecrated for unity, and yet it comes at its cost. And what is the cost, you might ask? Well, initially, the cost is this, freedom and choice. Freedom and choice. Whenever we gather together, whenever we come together, there is a realization that in community, I need to give up some of my freedoms. Some of the things that I want to do, when I want to do them, to whom I want to do it to, I need to give those things up. There are some things that I cannot do when I am, as a result of being in community and being in unity with other believers. Let me just give you an obvious one. We cannot continue to knowingly sin. Just can't do it. One of the hardest things as a pastor that I've ever had to do, one of the hardest things I think that any pastor has to do, is tell someone who's a part of a community to say you can no longer be here because of your continued sinfulness and unrepentant behavior. You are always welcome to come back and be a part of this fellowship, but we need to deal with this first. We don't have the right to continue to knowingly continue to sin and sin and sin and sin that divides the body, that continues to hurt others and think we can be a part of this community. Here's the other thing that it also limits and that also costs us is choice. When we say yes to one thing, we are saying no to 10 other different things. When we say yes to being a part of a community of believers, when we say yes to being a part of a community and to be in unity with each other, we are saying no to other things we could have been a part of. We are saying no to individuality as we perceive and understand it. We are saying no to those things, and it is hard. In other words, we trade freedom and choice for truth and obedience. We trade freedom and choice for truth and obedience. Jesus said it himself, this simple prayer going on in John 17, verses 17 through 19. It says this. Jesus says, set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, so I sent them into the world, and I set myself apart on their behalf. So what they too may be true, so that they too may be truly set apart. 
in order for us to understand how precious this gift is, we have to know that, you know what, as a result of receiving this, I have to limit myself. I have to limit my freedom, I have to limit my choice, and that's the cost, initially, of unity. Here in the church, whether it's here or anyone else, this requires us to hear, to adhere to truth and to be obedient. But unity is a precious, precious gift. Number three, unity is a life-giving gift. Unity is a life-giving gift. David says in verse three, it is like the dew of Hermon, which flows down upon the hills of Zion. Indeed, that is where the Lord has decreed a blessing will be available, eternal life. The picture here, for those who would have been familiar with what David was writing would have been understanding that Hermon was a mountain to the north in the northern part of Israel. Perhaps the highest part or the highest peak in all of Israel is Mount Hermon. And that Mount Zion would have been to the south. And indeed, what he's saying is that all of a sudden now, that dew that flows off of Mount Hermon goes everywhere, goes north and south, east to west. And what it does is it replenishes, it renews, it restores, it, it brings new life to everything that it touches. And it is just life-giving. And my hope is, is that as we gather together all the, all, every Sunday, is that in some ways that this would be a life-giving opportunity and time for each and every one of us as we gather together because that's what it should be. Unity and community refreshes, renews, and replenishes. Maybe you came off an incredibly difficult week and you walk into this place and hopefully someone just gives you a hug or shakes your hand or whatever else and says, how are you doing? It's so good to see you. Man, I hope that gives you some sort of renewal and refreshment. It's a beautiful thing when brothers and sisters live in unity. It truly is. So here's a question I want to ask. How do we potentially destroy unity? I'm going to go off trail here. That's not unusual, okay? How do we potentially destroy unity? I think there are many ways, but perhaps three things that come to my mind and that I thought was in agreement with many people I was reading in preparation for this message, three things typically might go a long way to destroy unity, and it's this, complaining, gossip, and false teaching. Complaining, gossip, and false teaching. And I am not implicating anyone here in any of this. Hear me on this, right? Complaining. Let me just start there. Complaining, right? Oh, it is so easy for us to complain, isn't it? Right? It is so easy for us to complain, even at church, right? Coffee is too hot. The snacks are store-bought today. They're not fresh. Why do I have to take a bulletin? Why don't we have bulletins? <laughs> Just an observation, right? I love that. I love that. Right? I mean, we, it's too cold in here. It's too warm in here. It's too loud in here. It's too soft in here right? I mean, we, we, it's so easy for us to complain. 
But here's the thing, church. Complaining is, it just can absolutely destroy unity. It can just, just destroy unity. Complaining can just absolutely, and just these small little things that we may say, we may say them under our breath, we may say them to each other, whatever, it doesn't matter. It goes a long way to all of a sudden beginning to divide us because now all of a sudden what happens is, oh yeah, you're right. It is too hot in here. And then you have other people going, oh no, it's not. It's too cold in here. That's why I have this blanket. <laughs> this sweatshirt I bring in. Right? I'm not implicating anyone today. Just hear me, okay? I've done it myself, right? Gossip, oh my word. I, I, I've been in church ministry for over 25 years, but I've been part of the church much longer than that. I, 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 here's one thing I've seen is that there is no greater efficient grapevine connection, no greater efficient gossip machine than that which is oftentimes in the church. And it's amazing how we phrase this. I have a prayer request. right? And then you begin to share information about someone and their life, and it's, wait a minute, is that a prayer request or is that gossip? We're really good at it, aren't we? Oh, no, 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 no. It's just a prayer request. This person really needs a lot of help, right? It's just, it's just awful. Here's the other thing is false teaching. False teaching. And what I mean by that is anything that's contrary to the gospel i'm not talking about things that we oftentimes may be thinking churches ought to talk about i'm not talking about political stuff i'm not talking about any of that stuff i'm talking about things that are contrary to the gospel of jesus christ which is why we are gathered which is why we are here which is why we worship and this is everything we do is because of jesus christ and the message he came to bring period and any teaching that may jeopardize, compromise, be contrary to that gospel message that we are all sinful people in need of a Savior. Jesus died on the cross to give us life and so that we could follow him and enjoy the life he wants for us. Anything that potentially goes against that gospel message that, that, that says Jesus came, Jesus, Jesus you know, won, he did it all. That compromises why we're here. And it compromises unity. An English clergyman, Thomas Manton, said this. And this is perhaps, the, even in addition to that, it's potentially biggest impact on the world out there. Divisions in the church always breed atheism in the world. I, have you ever been in a church that was in conflict? What a horrible witness. No wonder if someone who doesn't know Jesus comes in and sees that, says, well, what good is it me joining this? This is no different than what I experience in my own family or at work. I'm not talking about maintaining unity at all costs. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about here is maintaining unity requires in enormous risk. It requires us to be willing to admit our failures, to admit our need for Jesus, 
to admit our shortcomings, to admit those things that when we have engaged in things like complaining or gossip or have subscribed to false teaching is to call those things out, to repent of it, and to once again be joined together. You see, unity reflects God's image. The Shema in Deuteronomy 6.4 is perhaps the most important verse to a Jewish person. It's called the Shema, and Shema is the Hebrew word for hear, H-E-A-R, hear, hear. And this is what Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Do you know what our Shema is, church? I think it's John 10.30. Jesus says this, The Father and I are one. The Father and I are one. So how do we, church, continue to maintain and continue to hold on to this beautiful, wonderful, messy, dare I say, gift of unity? Let me give you one one way, I think it's an important one. I think it's an obvious one. And it's this. We together as a church continue to come together as we do every Sunday in worship. And we practice faithfully, regularly, consistently, with great devotion, the ordinances of the church. And what I mean by ordinances, I mean sacraments. And when I mean sacraments, I mean the Lord's Supper. Threefold communion. You want to know how we're different than other denominations? How we're better? <laughs> Just kidding. Once a year, we practice something called threefold communion, and that's a very intimate time in which we gather together in an evening and almost not almost, we, we go through the um, cycle that Jesus spent with his disciples on the last night he was with them. We have a meal together. We wash each other's feet. Men wash men's feet, women wash women's feet, and then we share in the bread and cup what we call communion. That is scary. That is out of the box, and yet it's a risk we're willing to take as a church to embrace unity. It's a risk. Baptism, another ordinance of the church, we are, have all been baptized, declaring our need for a Savior. What a beautiful picture of unity that is. Believer's baptism, anointing. There are times in our lives when we all need to be anointed with, with oil. Not just for consecrating, not for just setting apart, not for just once again saying you are holy, which by the way, you are and I am as followers of Jesus, but simply because I am going through a battle right now. I am going through a trial. I am going through things. I am not well. I am not well spiritually right now. I'm not well mentally right now. I'm not well physically right now. And the scriptures tell us when that happens, come together, anoint the sick with oil and pray over them. I wasn't going to share this this morning, but I'm going to share it anyways. I had a unique experience a week ago. Person was in the hospital going in for surgery. Person said, I want to be baptized, Dan. Praise Jesus. Here's the problem. 
we baptized the right way here. <laughs> and I didn't have a pool. To, yeah. <laughs> and so I took a picture of water that was in the hospital room there and I baptized this person. Unity, church. Unity. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. Here's the other thing. Is we also practice confirmation. We lay hands on each other. We believe God has called you to this specific ministry. We believe God has anointed you for this specific task. God bless you. Practicing the ordinances of the church is a phenomenal way for us to embrace and maintain this gift of unity that has been given to us. So this morning, I just want to encourage. I just want to affirm. I just want to leave you with this. We have unity here brothers and sisters. We have unity, not unanimity. You heard it. People were just calling me out. Amen for that. We have unity. We are gathered here for a single purpose to worship Jesus. We have gathered here because we are sinners in need of a Savior. We are gathered here because we have been lost and now we have been found. We have gathered here because we love Jesus and we love each other. And my encouragement this morning is let us never lose sight of what happens out there. May it never cloud our vision of what who and what we do in here. Amen. Pray with me, please. Jesus, as you and the Father are one, I am grateful this morning that we get to share in that unity, that beautiful gift, that wonderful gift, that precious gift, that life-giving gift of unity, Jesus. I am grateful for every single person here and the unique perspectives we all bring into this body. I am grateful, Jesus, that you take such a diverse group of people and you under under you as the head, Jesus, you make us one. Not that we have to look the same, not that we have to talk the same, not that we have to walk the same, but Father, we just acknowledge and believe and live out the reality and the truth is that you are our Lord and Savior. And we are so grateful to be able to follow you and to be a part of your kingdom. Father, help us to maintain this gift of unity. Help us to be risk takers to do it. Help us to acknowledge when we have fallen short of it and to confess and to repent and to once again join together. Because, Father, we know how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live in unity. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.